And, and if you remember, for the sake of this series, we are saying that human nearsightedness is a human condition in which you can see circumstances near to you clearly, but the faraway outcomes are blurry. We talked about how oftentimes in our lives, God's promises or God's plan can feel far off. In fact, it's so far off that it's kind of blurry and unclear to us. And then our vision will be interrupted by some situation or some problem or some circumstance we face in our lives. And really, that circumstance is all we can see. And in light of the circumstance and in ignorance of God's far-off promise, we make a nearsighted decision. Now, last week, I thought Pastor Bob really summarized it well when he said this. He said, when the circumstance in front of you is all you see, you think it's all there is. I think all of us had times in our lives when we felt like there was some circumstance in our lives that just consumed our vision. This past summer, when I was getting ready for this series, doing some studying, I came across this South African artist. His name is Philip Barlow. I had never heard of him before. I'm not a huge art fan. But what really attracted me to this artist, Philip Barlow, wasn't so much what he painted, but how he painted. His kind of painting calling card was painting scenes from real life, how they would appear to a nearsighted person or a person who can see up close really clearly but far away is blurry. Now, I had this idea. I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I could get one of Philip Barlow's paintings and I brought it here on a Sunday morning to show you all? But then I looked it up online to try to find one. I could find one, and it was $7,000. So I figured, that's probably a hair beyond the sermon aid budget. So what we're going to do instead this morning, uh, if you'll bear with me, we're going to put one of his paintings up here on the big screen. You can see it there. And, and, and what's awesome is that that's not like a Photoshop filter on a photograph. That is a painting on an oil canvas. He's just an amazing artist. But what I really want you to notice about this painting that we're looking at is, yeah, like, we can still generally tell what it is, right? Like, you can look at that and you can say, that is a city scene somewhere. It's still clear enough that you can get a general idea of what it is, but, but really, it's too blurry to tell with any accuracy where specifically that is. Like, we don't know if that's New York City or, or Tokyo or, like, downtown Butler, maybe. All right, it's not downtown Butler. But, you know, I was thinking about this, looking at his painting, I think, like, isn't, isn't nearsightedness in, in our life, isn't it kind of similar? Like, like, in our lives as human beings, aren't there things that we kind of can see, like, like, maybe God has designed them, and we can see sort of what he designed them to be. We can get a general idea, but this nearsighted condition that we all face blurs it from allowing us to really know what God wants for us. And so instead, we kind of come up with other ideas of what those things should be. Uh, today, we can say it this way, that nearsighted, the nearsighted condition, it blurs God's intention. The nearsighted condition, it can blur God's intention for different areas of our lives. Like, we can see God's general intention, but, but it's, it's just blurry until we come up with some wrong ideas around it. It's like, it's like there's enough truth in what we can see for it to be believable, but there's also enough false in it that it can be really, really harmful 
to our lives. And I think if you look around your life, you'll see this happens in a number of areas of, uh, of our lives. And we're going to talk about some of those areas in this series. Today we're going to look at one specific area, though, where, where this nearsighted condition blurs God's intention for an area of our lives. Where we're going to see, like, we get some general ideas about it, but some lies creep in, and it causes us to have some really distorted vision. One area today we're going to talk about, and in order to do that, we're going to jump back in to the main character's story that we've been studying in this series, The Life of Joseph. Now, last week, Pastor Bob talked about Joseph, and he carried the story along to the point where all these years of favoritism from Joseph's father, Jacob, directed toward Joseph had kind of come to an apex and Joseph's 10 jealous older brothers decided once and for all they're going to solve their Joseph problem. In Genesis chapter 37, the story tells us what they did. His brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and they sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Now, Joseph takes this 200-mile journey from a place called Dothan, which is really in modern-day Israel, all the way down to Egypt. And in Genesis chapter 39, verse 1, we find out what happens to him when he arrives in Egypt. The storyteller says, now, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's, now Pharaoh is the leader of the Egyptian people, the number one guy in charge, one of his officials, the captain of the guard, bought Joseph from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. there there's this dramatic reversal in Joseph's story, a, a dramatic plot twist. He went from the favored son to living a life of forced servitude. And, and Scripture here doesn't give us a lot of information about what was going on in Joseph's mind, but we do know that Joseph was a very, very smart person. So we can maybe get a guess at what he was thinking if we just ask ourselves, what would a smart person do? You're a smart person. What would you do if you were Joseph? Well, I think a smart person might start with considering their options. Joseph might have said, okay, what can I do here? One option was certainly, I can make a run for it. I can try to escape. But then he plays that scenario out in his head and he realizes, well, if I never even make it out of Egypt and I'm caught, it'll probably be off with my head. And even if I do make it out of Egypt, well, on three sides, this place is surrounded by desert and wilderness. And on one side, it's surrounded by the Mediterranean Sea. So what are the chances I'm going to pull a Bear grills and survive through that? And then he probably got to thinking, and even if I do make it, where am I going to go? I could go back home, but then there's my brothers and that's how I wound up here in the first place. And so Joseph does something in his situation that many of us in this room and many of us listening online get up and do every single day of our lives. He got up and he went to work. Now you all might be thinking, or a few of you might be thinking, I can really relate to Joseph. When I, feel, when I go to work, it feels just like forced servitude to me. Or others might be sitting here thinking, well, it's really not an exact Exact parallel, Joe, like I go to work and I get a paycheck, or, or maybe someone here is retired, or maybe someone here works in the home, and, and they say, you know, I, I'm not going out to work. I'm in a different place in my life right now, but here's what I want you to know. Today, we're going to look at Joseph's situation, and even though, even though it's not an exact parallel to any of our lives, there are many parallels in his story to many areas of our work lives, and when, when Joseph went to work, 
he learned something that I think each and every one of us learns from the first day of work on. And that's this. Not everyone views work the same, do they? Certainly not everyone views work like you view work. And we start to consider some of the different ways that people view work and, and this idea of nearsightedness. The framework for our teaching today is going to be this. We're going to look at four blurry pictures of work. Four ways that our human nearsightedness has crept in and has distorted our view of work, making it different from God's view of work. And we're going to look at four blurry views of work and contrast them with four ways that God views work. That's going to be the framework for this message. Now, uh, uh, several years ago, um, there was a group called the Society for Human Resource Management, and they got to thinking, wouldn't it be cool if we figured out what are the biggest factors for job satisfaction? When people really like their jobs, what are the most common factors those jobs have? So they did a study. Now I'm going to put the results of that study, the top five things, and I want you to think, how, how does your job compare to this? This is what they found. Let's, let's go ahead and put all, all five of them up one time, guys. All right, we're having trouble with that slide. Well, I'll just tell you what they were. Respectful relationships. Then they found that there was job security, good compensation, good management, and an opportunity for advancement. I'm almost afraid to ask, how, how does your job compare to those, those five things? Well, what you know is really that, that no job has all five factors that make a job perfectly satisfying. In fact, every job has some element of conflict in relationships, maybe a, a bad boss, inadequate compensation, that feeling of, I'm just stuck here, there's nowhere I can go. And when you have a job that just becomes too much of the things that, don't, that, that aren't satisfying, before long, you're going to take this perspective of your work. It's going to feel like work is a disappointment. <laughs> I want to make a joke, but we've got to keep moving, guys. <laughs> But, but here's the reality. For, for many of us, work can feel like a disappointment. It wasn't what you expected. It wasn't what you went to four years of college for. It wasn't what you took out $60,000 of debt for. There's a little phrase that goes through your mind all the time is, I just, I hate my job. You dread Mondays. You're, you're going to walk out of this church building today and you're going to get that pit feeling in your stomach. You're constantly checking monster.com. Your LinkedIn profile's never been better. You've thought things like, I worked so hard for that promotion, the long hours, and they gave it to someone else. Or, or maybe, maybe you got the promotion. You put in the work. You are where you wanted to be 10 years ago when you started into your career. And what you found is that, well, it's not even what you wanted to do. You don't even like it that much. Maybe it was, I loved working for the boss that hired me, but, but then she moved, and the guy who came in to replace her, well, he's just, we can't say that in church. Have you ever just felt like, oh, man, I'm just disappointed? I'll, I'll be honest, 
You know, I was going through a season a, a while back. I think, I think Walmart still had greeters during this time. And I, every time I'd walk into Walmart, I would say, I would look at the greeter and I'd say, I wonder what that pays, right? Like anything looks good except what you're doing. And anybody who's worked has felt that. Now let's think about Joseph. If there was ever anybody who could be disappointed in their situation, it, it was Joseph, right? He, he's stuck working in someone's house. He didn't sign up for this. But when we look at the story, we see a, a little bit of a different picture. You see, Scripture tells us that the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. How can Scripture say that the Lord was with Joseph? A little Bible study principle is when you see something that you would least expect, that is time when you should most inspect what God is saying. You see, what this verse tells us is the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. If you study archaeology, you, you begin to find that there are a number of different types of slaves in Egypt at that time. And if you were going to be a slave, there were certain positions you'd rather have. See, the least fortunate would be ones who worked out in the scorching sun in a field or in a stone quarry. Or maybe they would go to copper mines where the life expectancy was about six months. But Joseph, he was, he was in the house of an Egyptian master, which means that there were blessings that his master enjoyed that would have just flowed down onto him. He had a roof over his head. He, he was indoors working most of the time out of the heat. He ate from food prepared in his master's kitchen. His master's protection would have been over him. And somewhere along the way in his story, Joseph was able to capture the perspective about work that is this. He said, work, work presents challenges, but God is present in them. See, the Lord, the Lord was with Joseph. He was with Joseph even when it was dark. Genesis chapter 39 records some of the darkest moments in Joseph's life, and yet four times in that chapter, four times in chapter 39 alone, is the phrase, the Lord was with Joseph. And I want you to know that you might be in dark times today in your life, but that does not mean that the Lord is not with you. It was dark in Joseph's life. There were challenges present, but he learned that God is present in them. I don't know what challenges you're facing today. Maybe it is in your work. You've got a relationship conflict at work. You feel like work has just disappointed you, but I want you to know that God is still with you. Maybe it's some other area of your life. God is with you. In a hospital bed, God is with you. Standing beside a casket, God is still with you. Waiting for a phone call that never comes, God is with you. Just because it's dark and just because you can't see him everywhere doesn't mean that God is not anywhere in your life. Joseph learned in his life that despite the darkness, God was with him. Now, there was another approach that Joseph could have taken to work, or another option on the plate that we didn't talk about earlier. See, Joseph, in this situation, he could have played what I would call job Jenga. Do you know what the game Jenga is? 
Jenga is this game that you play, and it has some blocks that you put in a stack. And the goal of the game is to remove as many blocks as you can to find the fewest number of blocks possible to keep in the stack without the whole stack falling over. Some people play Jenga, their job Jenga, their entire lives. Job Jenga is simply the same thing. It's finding out what are the fewest things I can do, how in my job can I do less and less and less and less without the whole stack falling over. No no one could have blamed Joseph, right? He's a servant in somebody else's house. It would have made perfect sense for him to find the absolute minimum that he could do. The person that plays job Jenga views work like this, they say work is a disease, right? It's like work's contagious. I don't want to get near it. I'll be infected. You know this person. You've worked with them. It's like they put more time into getting out of work or appearing to be working without actually working than actually getting any work done. There's a cartoon character, Dagwood. The the, the comic's been around for years, but he had this quote. I couldn't find the actual cartoon, so I just just tell you what it is. But Dagwood, the notoriously lazy cartoon character, says, you can't teach people to be lazy. They either have it or they don't. Right? Some people just see work as a disease. Joseph could have certainly tried to get out of work. But when we look at his story, we, we see something different going on. Not only did he go to work, but when he went to work, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did. And Joseph found favor in his eyes. Joseph went to work and he worked hard and he worked well. The passage we're studying today, Genesis chapter 39, really 1 through 5, it's not really a play-by-play color commentary chapter. It's more of like the end of the game scoreboard chapter. It summarizes what happens over a long period of time in Joseph's life. And this passage we're studying probably records at least several years, more likely up to a decade of Joseph's life. And we don't know exactly how things went, but we can assume like when Joseph showed up in Potiphar's house, he was just like any other servant Potiphar had. He's had many before, so he wasn't really noticeable. But then over time, Potiphar began to notice this guy. This Joseph, he worked differently. It was like he cared. His work mattered. We don't know what the Egyptian word for it would be, but like, like he had this, this attitude of joy in his work. And Potiphar, he's probably thinking to himself, this is intriguing. Maybe it was some selfish intrigue. He's thinking, where do we get this one? Let's go find another one just like him. So he gets to know Joseph, and we don't know how this conversation or how this relationship was built, but what we do know is that over time, Joseph probably told Potiphar his story. And what we know for certain is that Joseph eventually told Potiphar who his God was. Because here in this passage, when his master saw that the Lord, this is the personal name for God, Yahweh. He knew who Joseph's personal God was. And the only reason he would have known who Yahweh was would have been if Joseph told him. And the only reason he would have wanted to know who Joseph's God was is because he saw how Joseph worked. Joseph's work mattered, and it made an impact on the people around him because our work teaches people about God's work. 
And this is why as followers of Jesus, it's so important that we have good work ethic. It's not just about making your parents proud or following in your daddy's example or even living up to your own standard. When you work, you're not just showing what kind of person you are. You're showing what kind of God you serve. And when we work hard and when we find favor, God finds favor. When we find favor in the eyes of our supervisors because we show up on time and we can be trusted and we don't have to be watched constantly, God finds favor. When we find favor in the eyes of our coworkers because we're not joining in the gossip about them behind their backs and we don't blame them for when we fall short or pass our work off to them, God finds favor. When, when we give our customers excellent customer service and treat them honestly, we find favor in their eyes, and that favor can point back to God. Our work ethic matters. Now, there, there's a passage in Proverbs. Uh, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I love it. This is what the Proverbs say about a lazy person. They say, it says, a lazy person or a slugger, he, he buries his hand in the dish, and he will not even bring it back to his mouth. In other words, he's saying there's a lazy person. They'll put their hand down on their food, but they're so lazy, like they won't even pick it up and feed themselves. See, see, lazy people expect others to do for them what they're capable and responsible for doing them, themselves. And, and I just want to, I want to talk to the guys, the men in the room for, for a moment. I, I've gotten to know a lot of the men in my seven or so years here at the church, and I, not surprised, but I'm just humbled by how hard the men in our church work to make a living and how hard you men work to provide for your families. A very hard-working congregation. And so I imagine for a lot of the guys that are sitting here listening to this, you think, you know, I don't, work is not a disease to me. I work hard. But men, I, I, I want to challenge you. This, this passage doesn't just apply to what we do for a paycheck. You see, this, I'll just be honest. I find in my life sometimes, like, I'll go to work and I'll work hard. I'll work hours on my sermon and, and all this other stuff for work. But guess what? I'll be sitting down in the chair, tired, watching a football game, content to let my wife pray with my kids upstairs. See, I, I want to put my hand in the dish. I, I want children that grow up to love Jesus. But I got to ask myself, am I, am I putting the work in to do that? Maybe it's your marriage. You're just, you're just content to mail it in. You go, to, you go to work every day. You're diligent, but when it comes to your marriage, you're, you're just, you're not putting any effort out. Maybe it's your faith. You think, I'm just going to go to church and I'll let the pastors teach me. I, I'm not going to put my, any time into learning God's word for myself. Or you're content to just come, put your hand in the dish at church and expect others to serve. Man, I challenge you. What would happen in your life, in your children's lives, in your marriage, in this church, if we took the same work ethic we take to the office or to the construction site and we put it in to the other areas of our lives? And I just tricked the people in the booth by touching the screen. My bad. We'll continue. That's my cue. There, there's a, you probably have heard of Gallup. They do all these surveys. And they do this survey every year. It's called the Employee Engagement Survey. And they just want to know how, how engaged are people in their work. And they break people really generally into three categories. There's, there's one, there's the engaged people. These are the people who show up to work every day. They're passionate. They can't wait to get there. They know they're making a difference. 
The other end of the spectrum are disengaged people. These are the people who, they would just, you know, they're, they're, they're like miserable in their job, and they're spreading their misery to everyone. They do this every year, and earlier this year, 2021, they found out that kind of surprisingly to me, I don't know how you feel about this, 36% of people are in that passionate and engaged category, and another 15% though are in that miserable disengaged category, but you can do the math. That leaves roughly half of all people in work in their survey who are not engaged. These are the people who, they go to work, they'll put in the time, but they won't put any energy or passion into their work. They kind of treat work a little bit like you treat a visit to the dentist's office, like something you've never said when the dentist was done cleaning your teeth or the hygienist was done cleaning, like, are you done? You don't want to do it a little bit more? Are you sure? There's probably more you can find. It's kind of like, I want to get in and get out and get it over with. People in this category, they kind of view work, not engaged people view work as a drudgery. It's a necessary evil. I got to get a paycheck. I want to keep the internet on. I want to keep Captain Crunch in the cupboard. We want to go to Myrtle Beach in July. I need to get money to live. But work has no more significance than that for you. It's just a paycheck. Uh, when I was dating my wife, my future father-in-law and I went out to dinner one time. We were just talking about work, and I, was, I think I was still in seminary and, and part-time working in a church. And, and I remember something he said to me that's always stuck with me. I don't even know if he remembers saying this. Um, he said, if you're normal, you're going to spend about 80,000 hours of your life working, which makes sense. That's about 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year, 40 years of your life, 80,000 hours of your life working. Why wouldn't you want to do something that you can find more purpose in than just making money? See, God's wisdom is the same. God's wisdom is the same. It's God has a more valuable purpose in your work than just making money. This has nothing to do with where you're at on the org chart or your job description. It has nothing to do whether your job is changing lives or changing tires or changing diapers. Whatever work God calls you to, he has a more valuable purpose in it than just making money. I, I want to show you something. This is the next verse in Genesis chapter 39. And here's the thing. Like, we sometimes treat Scripture like we treat western Pennsylvania back roads. Like, the more familiar you are, the faster you go. You're like, I took that turn at 57 last week, but I think if I just touch the brake, 59 is within reach, right? Kids, don't do that. But we just start to go so fast because it just becomes familiar. And chances are, if you've ever been to like Sight and Sound or read much of the Bible, you probably know some of the Joseph story. But don't miss this. Joseph found favor in his eyes, still talking about Potiphar, and became his attendant. Now, what we don't know from this word attendant, that the original language tells us is the word attendant, it's like, it's like a very personal word. It's like a personal servant. So, so he went from being a slave to, to being noticed to being the personal attendant of Potiphar. Potiphar then put him in charge of his household and entrusted to his care everything he owned. Now think about what this meant for Joseph's life, okay? As the personal attendant for Potiphar, he was now going to be spending time every single day going everywhere one of the most influential people in Egypt went. He was going to meet the influencers in Egypt. He was going to learn the customs, the culture, the language. He was going to learn how things got done. See, you might look at this and you might say, I get it, I get it. Joseph got a promotion. But the point here is not 
the promotion. The point is the preparation in his life. The point is not the promotion, it's the preparation in his life. God had big, far-off visions for Joseph's life that Joseph could never have even imagined. And what was going to happen in this role? God was going to equip him now for what he had for him next. God needed to do something in Joseph before he could do something through Joseph. You see, in your work, it's not just a way to make money. God has called you to do something in your life that he wants to use to prepare you, to work through you, to use you. He has a purpose in your work that is more valuable than just making money. Joseph, or God, was working in Joseph's life, preparing him for the role when he would one day ascend to leadership in Egypt. Joseph had no idea it was coming. He just thought he got a promotion. And in your work right now, the relationships you have, the experience that you're getting, the people that you get to know, the skills that you gain, you have no idea what God is doing in your life. But just because it feels like drudgery or just because it feels just like a paycheck, it doesn't mean that God doesn't have a bigger vision for what he's doing. God wasn't promoting Joseph. He was preparing him for what he had next. Now, there's, there's one more blurry view of work that we're going to look at, and this one is so baked into our culture that sometimes we don't even notice it's there. Let, let me give you an example. Um, some of you all know my wife. Her name's Trisha. She's worked for an accounting firm that has an office in Pittsburgh, and she's worked there probably about 15 years now. So, so very early in our marriage, I, I learned that one of my husbandly duties was to go to her annual office holiday party. Well, they call it holiday, but I'm calling it Christmas here. It was their Christmas party, and one of my jobs at that party was just to be shown off as her trophy husband, right? That's what... <laughs> I have no idea why you're laughing. <laughs> Anyhow, what you don't know about me is that I, I'm actually a, a pretty big introvert. Um, I'm shy, and I can struggle to make small talk with people because I'm just kind of shy. So, so for me, I would go to this party, and, and I would be kind of drug around with her, and, and there would, something would happen over and over again during the night. Like she would see a work friend, and they would go up and start talking about office work and all this stuff going on, and there would be me and another spouse just kind of standing there, usually a dude. And, and, and I read in a book somewhere that it's not socially acceptable to just look at your feet. <laughs> so, yeah. Conversation for dummies helped me out there. And so, so what would typically happen is, you know, I'm standing there, there's this other guy there, and, and we would just introduce ourselves. Hey, you know, nice to meet you. I'm Joe. I'm, I'm Trisha's husband. And then awkward pause. And, and you know what question's coming next, right? So, so what do you do? Now, I get it. On one level, that's like a safe question. It's way better than saying, oh, you're married to Melissa. Is that the M Melissa who's always sucking up to the boss? Right? Like, you're not going to offend anybody with that question. But it also shows that in our culture, we sort of believe that the best, fastest way to find out who a person really is is to ask them, what work do you do? J just a side note, a little life hack. I'll help you out. If you're ever at one of those parties and you want to get out of one of those awkward conversations, when they ask you what you do, just tell them you're a pastor, right? Like, <laughs> I, 
nine times out of ten, they all of a sudden decide they want another bacon-wrapped jalapeno pepper, which is like, just happens to be on the other side of the room. So. But here's the thing about our culture. You know, I, I think this is a challenge for most of us. Is that work, work becomes a definer for us. Your, your work becomes who you are. That's why when, when, when folks retire or they get injured, can't do their work anymore, it's like they don't know who they are. The, the mantra in our heads can be, my work equals my worth. Your work becomes where you get your significance. It's where you get your value. It's not just what you do, it's who you are. And really what you do is you take work as an opportunity to please God and it really becomes an obsession to prove yourself. You see, when work is your definer, there's this inner sense of I matter that gets attached to something at work. And it could be something objective like a salary or a position but it also could be attached to something a little bit less subjective. Like, like if your boss doesn't approve of you, you must not be worth anything. Or, or if, if your employees are mad at you, well then, well, then you're not really worth anything. There, there's an author, I, I love his work. His name's Timothy Keller, and he put it this way. He said, if our identity is in our work rather than Christ, well, then success is going to go to our heads and failure is going to go to our hearts. One of two things is going to happen in your work when it defines you. One, you're going to become far more proud than you ever should be. Or you're going to be far more disappointed and miserable in yourself than you'll ever be. Because your identity is tied to your work. Because you tell yourself the story that my work equals my worth. And this is what's fascinating. Joseph was probably one of the most successful, smartest people in all of Scripture, if he was American, we'd be telling everybody he is a true American story. Started at the bottom, you'll see he's going to work his way all the way up to the top. But when we actually look at his story, we see something different. See, Scripture tells us that from the time Potiphar put Joseph in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and on the field. See, when work is your definer, it says, look at me. But Joseph's work told a different story. It said, look at God. And the truth is that whether Joseph was wildly successful or whether he just labeled in humble obscurity like many of us will do all of our lives, his worth did not change at all because God's work in his life demonstrates his worth. His work did not demonstrate his own worth. And the same is true for us. Our work does not determine our worth. God's work demonstrates our work, our worth. You see, when we read stories like this, and I've been doing it too all the way through it, we kind of tend to put ourselves in the place of the main character. Like, I'm Joseph, or I'm David out there swinging the, swinging the slingshot and killing the giant. But the truth is, if we look inside the stories and we place ourselves in one of the characters and we're honest, it would usually have to be one of the villains or, or at best just some bystander. So today what I want you to do as we wrap up is take yourself out of your mental Joseph costume and think what would it have been like to be Potiphar? Suddenly, you've got all this extra money. Your kids are wearing the fanciest sandals money can buy. People are noticing all those shiny rims on your chariots. 
Your wife just bought a house down on the Nile. She's posting it on Facebook. And so some nosy person finally asked, Joseph, or uh, Potiphar, what's your secret? Rumor has it you robbed the pyramid. And Potiphar says, no, no, no. Truth is, I didn't rob, rob a pyramid. I really can't explain what happened. See, here's the thing. I put this one guy in charge of my life, and well, my worth then just went to the moon. Through one man, Joseph, through one man, Potiphar was blessed, and his whole household changed. Theologian-y types would call Joseph in this story a Christ type. A Christ type is simply a person in an Old Testament story who does something that points to something Jesus is going to do one day. And just as through the work of one man, Joseph, Potiphar's life was wildly blessed and wildly changed, and his worth was demonstrated to all. Through one man's work, through Jesus' work, our lives can be wildly changed and our worth is demonstrated to all. The, the Apostle Paul, many years after the Joseph story took place, was writing about our worth and God's work. And he put it this way in Romans chapter 5. He said, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what we were worth. There's an old saying that it's worth what someone will pay for it. So if this is the price that was paid for us, what does that say about our worth to God? And if, if this incalculable price was paid and demonstrates our worth, and what that means is that there's no work that we can do, whether it's in the job or, or at home or in our spiritual lives or any work whatsoever that can increase our worth anymore because our worth wasn't established by our work. It was established by what Jesus has done for us. In fact, saying that we can work to make ourselves more worthy to God is kind of like saying that putting a $100 bill in the glove box makes a million-dollar Ferrari more valuable. It just doesn't add up. So because our worth is determined by Jesus and not ourselves, there's nothing we can do to earn what he's given us. There's nothing we can do to erase it. The only thing we can do is choose whether to accept it. When Potiphar put Joseph in charge of his life, it changed his life. The original language describes that putting him in charge with the words, handing it over. In fact, one translation that is a really literal translation, he said, he took all that he had and he put it into his hand. He put it into Joseph's hand. The lesson for some of us today is not that we need to be harder workers, is that we need to be hander overs. We need to take something in our hand and we need to hand it over to Jesus. What's in your hand today that you need to hand to Jesus? Maybe it is a job situation. Maybe it is a relationship at work. Maybe it is a financial need that you need work to meet. Hand it over to Jesus. It, it could be a hurt that you're carrying. Could you imagine the hurt that Joseph experienced? Maybe we need to hand a hurt over to Jesus. Maybe it's where you're getting your worth. You just feel like you're so consumed in work and you can't imagine what life is like without it. Or maybe work is going so poorly and you're just torn up. And really what it means is that your whole identity is wrapped up in your work and you just open your hands and give it to Jesus. 
Maybe it's your life. You've never turned your life over to Jesus. You've kept it in your hands. In fact, what I want you to do this morning is, as we close, please bow your heads with me. If there's something in your life this morning that you need to hand over to Jesus, say, Jesus, I'm just going to put you in charge of this. I'm going to give it to you. With our eyes closed around the room, just put your hands out. Just put your hands out and open them and say, Jesus, I need to hand this over. And if that's you this morning, let me pray over you. Jesus, I pray that you will weaken our grip. Jesus, that we will realize that there's no amount of control that we can exercise in our lives that makes what we want to do better than what you want to do in us. And as there's some in this room who are just giving something to you, Jesus, I pray that you will take it today. Lift the burden. Do the work. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for hanging in, us, hanging in here with us as we went a few minutes longer than normal. Pastor Bob's going to come next week. He's going to share again out of Genesis chapter 39, another area of our lives where nearsightedness just blurs God's intention. You don't want to miss it. Have a wonderful week. See you all next Sunday.